going to do something a little different today. Those of you uh, who are new to City Church, um, this is not what we normally do, uh, but uh, those of you who've been a part of our church know that we've been in a series on marriage, and we call it New Marriage, uh, Same Spouse. And during this series, we've, we've really been looking at what God's design for marriage is, and uh, we've kind of focused our attention on one particular passage of Scripture, and during this series, you guys have been sending questions in um, that you have about marriage or things that we've covered in this series, and you guys have done a great job of, of sending, questions, uh, sending questions to us, and today, uh, what I had said was that I'm going to just take a moment and I'm going to take this, the, the time this morning and answer the questions that you guys sent in, okay? Um, some of these we've already answered, uh, perhaps out on, uh, uh, on Tumblr. And maybe you've read some of the answers, but we're going to elaborate on a little bit more today. Some of, them we, some of the questions that you asked, we won't have time to get to, but they are out on Tumblr, and you can go out and check that out and find out what we've said about it uh, already. Uh, just little, just give, let me give you a little bit a uh, sense of where we're going in the next few weeks. Uh, I told you that next week is Easter. We're going to be doing a series next week. Excuse me, we're going to be doing uh, one particular sermon next week that's really going to be oriented toward your friends and family that perhaps don't know Christ. And we're going to be highlighting the issue of grace. That's the, one of the main distinguishing factors of Christianity to any other world religion or to life. You know, our li- our, the world that we live in doesn't live on the basis of grace. And so we're going to be talking about grace, okay? And the sermon is going to be called The Trauma of Grace. So make sure you come for that. Make sure you invite somebody to come and be a part of our church next week for that. Then the following week, we're going to start a series. You know, we've been kind of, we've been pretty heavy for the, for the spring, and some of the things that we've talked about. And so we're going to kind of lighten up a little bit, and we're going to do a four-week series, and it's going to be called City Church at the Movies. And we're going to, we're going to look at four Oscar-nominated movies, Dallas Buyers Club, 12 Years a Slave, Philomena, and Nebraska. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about how to think redemptively about the arts as a Christian. Now, some of you are wondering, well, why wouldn't we choose, like, Christian movies to do? Well, the answer is, I don't like them. They're not very good. And I, so we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at Christian movies. We're going to look at art, and we're, good art. And we're going to ask ourselves, you know, how do you think redemptively about art in our culture? How do you think biblically about it? How do you analyze it critically? But how do, you, how do you do it without being critical? You know what I'm saying? So we're not going to beat these movies down. We're going we're gonna to look at what we agree with, what we don't agree with, but how we look at these movies redemptively. All right? So that's where we're going. Um, you guys excited about that? Is that, that going to be okay? Yeah. Good. All right. I want to say a word of prayer, and then I want to launch into some of these questions um, that you guys have asked. Lord, uh, as, we, as we go about this this morning... It's different. It's not what we normally do. But I pray, Lord, that you would that you would still use this. That you would speak through uh, your word today, and that you would encourage married people today. Pray that you would encourage people who've never been married. Pray that you would encourage people who have been married and uh, the marriage didn't work. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. We we need to hear you. We need we need your word, and uh, so speak to us this morning and changes. And Lord, we want to exalt Christ. We want to exalt you in everything because we believe that the cross changes everything. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You know, uh, I want you guys to know how important it it is for me to be here today, uh, how much, how important it was for me to be here today. Somebody, a friend of mine, invited me to go to the Masters Golf Tournament today. 
And I said, you know, I promised to be there and to answer their questions about marriage, and I can't go. But I said to him, I said, you go with God, and don't feel guilty at all <laughs> that we're here. And, and don't feel like your marriage will suffer as a result of that. You go with God. So anyway, you did send a lot of great questions, um, and I kind of just randomly drew some questions out. I've got them here on my iPad. Uh, let, me, let me just tell you what the first question was. Uh, it, is, it was this, does your wife realize how lucky she is to be married to you? And I thought that was a really great question, and uh, I'm not sure who submitted that, but... Um, Wait, I guess that was me that put that in. Uh, I, and I'll just answer it by saying I think she has a pretty accurate gauge on what it's like being married to me. Uh, I'll just put it, put it that way. Um, here's a question I, I think is an important question, and uh, I wanted to answer this one, and I appreciate whoever sent this in. What are the approved biblical reasons for divorce? And uh, you know, this is sort of on the periphery of what we've talked about, but I think it's a very important question. And traditionally, the church has said that, that really uh, there are only two reasons that uh, c people could legitimately get a divorce, biblically get a divorce. And those were adultery or the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. But uh, that was based on a very superficial glance at the scriptures. Uh, what, what happens is that there was a time in America where, where America, you know, I, I really don't believe that America has been a Christian nation, but I believe that it has been Christianized at times in the past. And as a result of it being Christianized, divorce was stigmatized by the culture at large. And so the church really didn't have to think much about the issue of divorce. And so if, you, if, if the church just took a cursory look at the scriptures on the subject of divorce, they would look at, okay, where does the Bible use the word divorce? And they looked at a couple of passages of scripture that spoke to that, and they came up with the issues with the subject of adultery and abandonment. And they said, well, those are the only two reasons that people can get divorced. But when the, when the culture changed, and when the culture became way I like to refer to it is post-Christianized, okay, and, and I think we would all agree that our culture today is post-Christianized, uh, the church had to begin to look more deeply at the scriptures, and what it says not just about divorce, but what it says about relationships in general, and what it says about uh, marriage, um, and forgiveness, and grace, and all sorts of things related to the subject of divorce. When I was in seminary, I was taught the standard lines that um, divorce was only allowed when adultery occurred or in the case of the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. But when I got into ministry, almost immediately, I began to bump up against situations that were very complex and that didn't fit into the, to the issue of adultery or abandonment. So, for instance, um, what do you do when you have a believing husband, a, a husband who says he's a believer in Christ, and he beats his wife? Well, that doesn't really fit into adultery or abandonment. But, there, but, but I remember thinking to myself, there's no way that God would want her to stay and continue to be abused. And what I found is that I started thinking to myself, 
well, I wonder if he's committed adultery. And kind of, because, because adultery and abandonment were the only ways that we could get her out of the marriage, biblically, I began to think, I hope he's committed adultery. I hope he's committed adultery. And I realized this is really a stupid way of thinking, that I'm hoping this guy has committed adultery so that I can get her out of this marriage. What do you do with a wife who runs up a $100,000 credit card debt? This is a real situation I face. She runs up a $100,000 credit card debt, won't work to help pay the debt off, drives staggeringly drunk every day to pick up the kids from school, drives them home drunk, weaving all over the road. The husband comes into my office and he says, the only way that I can get her so that she can't pick my kids up from school drunk. The only way I can do it in the state of Texas, I don't know what it's like here in Indiana, but in the state of Texas, the only way I can do it is to get a restraining order on her, and I can only do that if I had legally filed for divorce from her. Do you say, well, sorry, unless you can prove that she's committed adultery, and again, I would find myself going, if any chance, any remote chance, like, do you think maybe, maybe any remote chance? What do you do with that? What do you do with a husband who won't get a job to provide for his family, lays on the couch and smokes pot all day long, tells his wife the church won't let her divorce him because he hasn't committed adultery, and she'll get punished by the church because it's not adultery. And he'll be left, he'll be in fine standing with the church. What do, what, do you, what do you do with that? What do you do with a Christian husband who puts a gun to his wife's head? Uh, none of those, none of those fit, but obviously none of those represent a marriage. Right? That's not the spirit of marriage. And often what happens is that the spouse who's, you know, there, there may be one spouse who wants the marriage to work, but one spouse who doesn't want the marriage to work. And the way the church traditionally, historically has worked, unless it was adultery or abandonment, here's what happened. The spouse who was causing the problems got to stay in the church, but the spouse who wasn't causing the problems and didn't want the, the, the divorce to begin with wanted the spouse to get his or her act together and let's have a marriage. That spouse ended up getting disciplined by the church and kicked out of the church. And so I, not just me, other people too, went back to the scriptures and found a few very interesting things. I, I, here are the, some of the things I found. That yes, God hates divorce, but he made provision for it. Because he's not so naive to think that people don't sin and make life miserable sometimes for another person. And in fact, I found something else interesting that uh, in Jeremiah chapter 3, God gives Israel a divorce. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Uh, idolatry is what that's talking about. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. The point is that God gave Israel a certificate of divorce. He divorced the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel wanted to be divorced from him. It wasn't because he wanted to be divorced. It was because they wanted to divorce. 
And I also found that Jesus did a, I almost feel silly saying this, but Jesus did a fantastic job of summarizing uh, what the Old Testament had to say about divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 8, Jesus says this. He said, Moses, and, and when he says Moses, he's referring to the law of Moses in the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Now, understand for just a moment. The reason that he says divorce your wives, he's speaking to men, is because a wife essentially had no, there, there would be no wives back then that divorced their husbands because they had no way to live and survive if they weren't married. Husbands routinely divorced wives, but wives did not divorce husbands. So he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. In other words, that wasn't God's intent. But Moses permitted it because some of you had hard hearts. This this phrase, hardness of heart, what, what Jesus means is that there are some people who are so callous their hearts are so callous, and they are so unrepentant about their sin, and they're so negligent in their marriage toward their spouse, that they're so hard-hearted that their behavior violates the very spirit of what a marriage is supposed to be. Now, what would be some examples of hardness of heart? See, because, let me just make sure you understand, Jesus Jesus is saying that hardness of heart can apply to many different circumstances. Not just adultery. uh, Not just abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Hardness of heart can apply in many circumstances. Let me give you some examples. Serial adulterers. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't believe that adultery is an automatic reason for divorce. In fact, I have seen more marriages survive adultery than I have seen survive abuse. I think adultery is horrible. Don't misunderstand me. I mean, I think it's a horrible sin. But it's nothing like somebody putting a gun to someone's head or someone, a husband beating a spouse or any number of other circumstances that can occur in a marriage. Um, Addiction with no repentance. Uh, That can be hard-hearted. Physical abuse or emotional abuse, that can be uh, a sign of hard-heartedness. Unwillingness on the part of a man to provide for his family. Not, Not the inability of a man to provide for his family. The unwillingness of a man to provide for his family. Okay, Those are different things, right? So it's not just that he's not providing enough money for you and for your... Uh, for your taste, it's, it's his unwillingness. You know, like he's, he's like, I'm not going to work. I will not get a job. I'm going to smoke pot or whatever it is he's going to do and not going to get a job. Okay. That would be a sign of hard-heartedness. Christian or non-Christian abandonment of a spouse. Whether you know, I've, I've seen Christians that have abandoned their spouses before. Um, abuse of children. That can be hard-heartedness. And there are many other places that hard-heartedness can become so callous, so bad, that there's no way to have a marriage. And here's, here's, here's what you need to understand, is that in some cases where hard-heartedness occurs, the divorce happens long before the legal system happens, right? So a person who has beaten his spouse, let's say, has already divorced her. 
Now, she may have to go file the paperwork because a lot of, and I've seen this happen a lot of times, a lot of times the, the spouse who's doing the offending will not file the paperwork. She may have to go file the paperwork, but he, if he has beaten her, has already divorced her in his actions. Okay? So sometimes the divorce happens before the legal system ever gets involved. Marriage, in any biblical sense, has already ended before the legal system, before someone files paperwork. Filing paperwork isn't always the moment of divorce. Divorce often happens before in the hard-heartedness. And here's something else that I discovered from the Scriptures, and that is that the church should be actively involved in the process and should actually sometimes, in some circumstances, bless the person who may have to file the paperwork and discipline the person who prompted the filing of the paperwork. Now, here's a few things about this. The reason that the church should be involved is that, uh, let, me, let me just make sure you get this, okay? If you're in a marriage and you wonder if it's like at a place where your spouse is so hard-hearted that there's no coming back from this. Let me tell you something. You are not in a position to be able to determine that. You need the church to help you determine if your spouse has reached that point. You need the involvement of the leadership of your church to determine if that person is so hard-hearted that there's no hope for this marriage. Because you're not objective enough to do that, right? You need your church. And I will grant you that there are a lot of people who would be afraid to uh, get, have their church get involved because sometimes churches do not want to get involved in this stuff. Because, you know why? Because it's very complicated and it's very messy. And sometimes churches would just rather stay out of that. But I don't think as a church we can afford to do that. I think we have to be involved. And I think, I think there are spouses who need the church to come in and say, uh, listen, to whoever the, the spouse is, to say, listen, we believe that what you're doing or not doing is so hard-hearted that unless you get your act together, unless you start dealing with this subject and dealing with this issue in your marriage, we're going to say that your spouse is free to file for divorce and we're not going to discipline your spouse for filing for divorce. We're going to discipline you for not dealing with the issue. I also think that the church should be involved because we can save marriages if the church intervenes. That's the point of all of this, is to save marriages. And sometimes when you say to another spouse, we, listen, we, we, we've heard you, we've heard your spouse talk about this, and we believe that you're the one that is at, uh, primarily at wrong here, and we think that you've got to deal with this. Sometimes that saves a marriage. If the church doesn't get involved, Sometimes it leaves the victims holding the bag. And they feel very alienated by the church and the gospel and Christianity. And sometimes that's a part of our responsibility. Is to intervene and help try to save a marriage. And if we can't save the marriage, at least we say to one person, we think you have the right, if you have to, if, you, if, if you've come to that place, we, we think you have the right to file for divorce and uh, we're not going to discipline you. In fact, we'll, we'll do that with the spouse.
Sometimes you have to do that. Now, the second question that some of you guys submitted, and, and it, it's kind of a follow-up to that issue, and that is, what does the Bible say about remarriage after divorce? Well, you saw just a moment ago that uh, the, pat, the Scripture said, Jeremiah chapter 3 said that God had given Israel her certificate of divorce. In the Old Testament, in the law, one of the provisions of the law, because God knew the hard-heartedness of humanity, was that if a man divorced his wife, he was to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, the purpose of the certificate of divorce was to say to anyone else that that woman wanted to marry that she was free to marry. In other words, that she wasn't legally tied to this man. Now, again, I just want to reiterate, the reason that it only speaks to men giving the certificate of divorce to women was because women in that culture would never have gotten a divorce from a man. Only the men did it. Uh, women were just left to themselves. They had no way to provide for themselves financially. And so if she was divorced from a husband, she probably either had to remarry or go into prostitution to survive. And so often the choice was remarriage, and God knew that. And so he gave, a, he, he, the provision was a certificate of divorce so that she could legally show that she was free to remarry. So because of that, there is no issue with remarriage. If divorce occurs then remarriage is allowed. Now, I would also add this, that whether the divorce was your fault or your spouse's fault, regardless of how all of that worked out, even if the church said, yeah, we, we think that you have the right to file for divorce here, be very wise about remarriage. Sometimes, the, sometimes there can be patterns of thinking and behavior, and there can be things that attract you for reasons that you may not even know to a certain kind of person that you tend to be attracted toward that is the same problem, that has the same problems that your previous marriage did. And so we would also always say, be very careful about that, take your time, make sure that you have thought through this very carefully, and introduce your prospective spouse to a lot of people whose opinions you trust and value and get good, honest input and feedback on that person, we'd always say that. But divorce is, yeah, di di excuse me, remarriage is allowed after divorce. Question number three. Somebody asked, do you have any words of advice for those who are married to unbelieving spouses? And, uh, I appreciated that question because uh, I've, over the last 23 years of being in ministry, I have seen a lot of this, seen a lot of uh, people who are married to spouses who don't believe in Christ. And I, I, the first thing I would say is it is very difficult. Um, and I know that it is a very lonely place to be because you feel like that this is something that you would love to share with your spouse, but... Your spouse just does not, for whatever reason, have the same interest, maybe doesn't honor uh, your walk with Christ, maybe doesn't help you reinforce it with the kids. And it can be a very lonely place to be. I do want to say four things to you. The first is pray. Um, pray for your spouse. And the second is be patient as you pray for your spouse. Um, I have seen spouses, and I, I mean, I've personally seen this, spouses who have been prayed for for years come to Christ. 
And I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing that is more exciting almost than seeing a woman who has been praying, or a husband who's been praying for his or her spouse for years and years and years, and the church has been praying for that person. Nothing more exciting than seeing that person come to Christ and then seeing um, that person take it and own it for himself or for herself. That is exciting. And I would just say, be patient. It, it can happen. It can happen. And it sometimes does. The third thing that I would say to you is don't badger your spouse. Don't use guilt, manipulation, or shame to motivate them. Don't use badgering, guilt, manipulation, or shame to motivate them. That will only drive them further from Christ. And it, it won't do a lick of good. Uh, the best thing that you can do is pray for them. And then the fourth thing is continue to pursue your own spiritual growth in the midst of this, in the midst of your marriage. And sometimes maybe that can be the thing that draws your spouse in as they see the reality of Christ worked out in your life. Sometimes that can be something that is profoundly persuasive to them. Now, I, I want to just take a step back and, and I want to say to those of you who are not yet married, but perhaps you're dating someone who doesn't know Christ. Uh, some of the loneliest people I have known are married to a spouse who doesn't know Christ. And I would say, don't ever marry someone hoping that they will believe in Christ after the wedding. Uh, the scriptures are very clear about that. They say, don't be unequally yoked. Believers should not be unequally yoked, tied together in a covenant relationship with people who are not believers in Christ. One of the greatest disasters that can happen in your life is to be married, is to go into a marriage hoping that someone will come to Christ after you get married. Don't, don't ever do that. Now, I'm not saying it's never happened. It does. But don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Put Christ at the center um, of your dating relationship right from the very beginning. Make it known that Christ is the center of your life and that you want Christ to be the center of your dating relationship from the beginning. And you will be surprised uh, how many people opt out, uh, how many potential spouses opt out at that moment. But it's better that they opt out then than that they opt out later. And don't rationalize about it. Don't... don't don't stay in that relationship while you're dating and say, well, you know, he's just a really good person and she's just, I just really like her and just don't do it. Let me, real quickly, I want to tell you a story. Uh, when I was single, uh, there was a girl that worked at, the, um, at a place that I worked and um, she was single and so, but she didn't know Christ. But I thought she was cute. And so I told some of my friends who were Christians, I said, you know, there's this girl that works where I work and, and uh, she doesn't know Christ, but she's cute and, and I'm tempted to ask her out on a date. And all of my friends said, do it, just do it. Why not? Just go for it. Do it, it's no big deal. It's just a date. I knew, though, that if I went out with her and dug her, I knew that my heart was going to go out and it was going to be harder and harder and harder to not call again. And so I just didn't do it. And look, I'm, I'm, not saying just, I'm not saying follow everything that I do, but I am saying this. Recognize that your heart does go out. It does go out to people after you get to know them. And it makes it harder and harder and harder to say no. 
And like, if you don't, if they're not where you're at spiritually, don't do it. Don't do it. Another question that someone asked, and then we'll we'll wrap up, we'll wrap up with with this one. Actually, we might not, because there's another one after that that I really want to answer for. But uh, what can we do if we had sex before marriage? And that's a great question because we, we talked about the fact that, that sex is really, in this series, we talked about the fact that sex is designed for marriage and not for outside of marriage. And we said that, we said that um, sex can't create intimacy. Um, sex can, come, can only come out of intimacy in marriage. And I, and I made the comment uh, in this series that a lot of issues in marriages, it's very interesting a lot of issues in marriage go back to issues that uh, develop during the dating period and to character issues that were overlooked during the dating period because uh, the two people got sexually involved. And, you know, when you get sexually involved, your heart really goes out to somebody. And it begins easy, to become easy to just overlook stuff. The purpose of dating... The whole purpose of dating is to develop a friendship with someone and to build trust with that person and to assess their character and their integrity and to ensure that they have the same spiritual perspective and the same spiritual goals that you have. Sex, in the context of dating, short circuits that uh, trust-building, character-assessing, friendship-building process. And really, and I would speak to ladies here, you know that as soon as you're sexually involved with someone, your heart really begins to go out to that person. And, and it does become very easy to rationalize uh, the problems in the relationship because of that. Um, and so what I would say to those of you who were sexually involved prior to your marriage, I, I would just say, go back to that time and do what you should have done then. And, and that is just simply own it, own that it was wrong, and repent to each other. Tell your wife, tell your husband, I know that was wrong, and uh, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't have allowed that, or I shouldn't have pursued that, and, uh, and I ask your forgiveness. And then repent together before the Lord. Now, obviously, if you're married to someone who's not a believing spouse, you can't do that. But if, if both of you are believers in Christ, repent together before the Lord. I mean, like, go together before the Lord. And, Lord, you know, we own it. We're wrong. And we ask your forgiveness. And then forgive each other and forgive yourself. You, you have to forgive yourself. And understand that Christ's forgiveness extends, the cross of Christ extends all the way back in your past and all the way forward in your future. And then at that point, you can begin to deal with the issues in your marriage on a with, a, with a clean slate. And you may have to go, you may have to get some counseling. Look, I said this in the series, and I'm going to say it again. Let's just all get over this whole big hang-up we have about getting counseling, that somehow that means that, you know, we got to be secretive about it because... You know, that means we've got real problems. Yeah, you've got real problems. So does everybody. Every couple has real problems. So let's just get over that. Go to counseling. That's not a big deal. You need objective help. 
And maybe it's someone you have to pay. Maybe it's not someone you have to pay. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe, maybe it's somebody else could give you counsel. But get counseling, okay? That's a good thing. It's helpful. And I think I said this during the series. I, I tell couples who, I, when I marry them, you know, like if I do the premarital counseling with them, I tell them, save marriage for counseling. You're going to need it. It's a great investment. So just do that. But own it and get, the, just like get that behind you and begin to work on your marriage from that point on. And God will, God will bless that. Okay, he will do that. Okay, honestly, last question, I promise. Here it is. And I wanted to make sure I answered this because this is a great question. Are people who are actively involved in homosexuality welcome at City Church? Someone asked that question, and we kind of touched on that because the, the issue of marriage and, and uh, gay marriage in our culture is a very, very uh, significant issue right now. And uh, so I felt like I needed to answer this again. And I want to say it again. Absolutely. People who are involved in homosexuality, actively involved in homosexuality, are welcome at City Church. Absolutely. They are as welcome at City Church as people who are actively engaged in greed and gossip and lust and heterosexual sin and pornography and unforgiveness and malice and feelings of superiority or any other sin. Because every all sins are equal at the foot of the cross. I mean, that's we're all sinners here at City Church. And that's what the gospel's for. It's what it's about. It's, it's about people who are broken. And I think if you're if you're seeking, if you come to City Church seeking truth. I think you'll dig it here at City Church. I really do, if you're, if you're seeking truth. But also know this, that, that truth sometimes offends. Look, um, you know, I always get frustrated when, when people uh, say, well, you know, you're a pastor. Could you come and do a motivational talk for us? I mean, sometimes the things that as a pastor I talk about aren't really motivational. Do you understand that? that I mean... If you think that pastors are motivational speakers, then, you know, look, sometimes maybe we are, but if we're really doing our job, sometimes we're, like, not so motivational. We're really dealing with hard issues. And I would tell you that the scriptures offend me personally every time I look at them, and every time I study them, and every time I preach a sermon, I promise you that the scriptures offend me. And sometimes it's really hard to get words out because I know I wrestle with whatever it is that we're talking about. And I'm like, who am I to be talking about this? But the thing that's tricky with homosexuality, and this is what, this is what really makes it hard, is that uh, a lot of people have become deceived by our culture into believing that homosexuality is an identity. Like, it's not sin, it's an identity. It's who I am. It, let, me, let me try it this way. You know, let me explain it this way. The difference between, say, adultery and homosexuality is viewed by our culture. I, I'm, I will tell you that our culture does encourage adultery in some ways, but it really doesn't overall condone it. On whatever basis, it doesn't condone uh, adultery, and I don't understand how you don't... I don't understand in a culture of relativism how you uh, say that some things are wrong. <laughs> but our culture does still, for the most part, stigmatize adultery. On the other hand... With homosexuality, our culture says, no, that's right. 
That's who you are as a person. You see, we don't say with adulterers, well, you were born an adulterer. Um, that's right. You are an adulterer, and that's good, and that's okay. We don't say that. But we do say that as a culture with homosexuality. And so what often happens, and what makes this so tricky, is that if, if, if I stand up or we as a church stand up and, and say, here's what the Bible says about homosexuality, and make no mistake, the Bible is unequivocal about this. It, the homosexuality is a sin. I mean, there, there's just no way to get around that. Try every way you want. There's no way to get around it. Um, if we say that, what we're accused of being is homophobic and discriminating. And that's not what we are. I, I'm no more afraid of somebody who struggles with homosexuality than I am someone who struggles with heterosexual sin. I'm, I'm not afraid of that at all. I don't, I don't feel phobic about any of that. I just tell you, the Bible's an equal opportunity offender. Um, And so if you come here and you're, you're like, well, it's who I am, it's my identity, then I, you're probably going to get offended. And, it, and, and I can't help you. I can't help that. Um, can't help that. If you come here looking for truth, you'll hear the truth. And you will hear it given, um, I hope, with great love and mercy and, and with an eye toward redemption. But we'll tell you the truth. Now, here's a follow-up question that, that someone asked, and I thought this was great. Is, is homosexuality, is, is the fact that someone struggles with homosexuality, is that a greater sin than mine? Now, the difficult thing in answering that is that I don't know, I don't know the person, and I don't know what their sin is. So I, it's really hard to say. But I would say there's two, there's, it's a two-part answer to that question. In terms of redemption, absolutely not. Uh, the cost of redemption is the same regardless of the sin. A crucified Messiah. Right? In terms of the effect on society, perhaps, there are some sins that have greater consequences and greater effect on society than others. So let me give you an example. If I were at home and I choose to drink too much, and I get drunk, and I'm in the privacy of my home, is it wrong? Of course. It's wrong to be drunk, no matter what. I mean, that's wrong. If I choose to go get in my car and drive, and I kill three people, the effect, the consequence of my sin is greater there than it was in the privacy of my home. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Same is true with any sin. And so, yes, there are some sins that the consequences are greater than others, but the cost is no greater. The cost is always a crucified Messiah. And that includes, you know, look, for those people who are here today who count their religiousness as a way to earn approval before God, your religiosity that you're trusting in the cost for that was a crucified Messiah.
And for those of you who are adulterers who are here today, the cost of that was a crucified Messiah. And those of you who struggle with homosexuality today, the cost of that was a crucified Messiah. And those of you who struggle with pride, the cost of that was a crucified Messiah. And those of you who struggle with greed and gossip and anything else, the cost was a crucified Messiah, always the same. A crucified Messiah. And that leaves all of us, all of us, sinners and equal at the foot of the cross. I didn't get a chance to answer all of your questions. I'm going to wrap up there. I thank you for the questions that you sent in. You sent in great questions. You can go out on Tumblr, even on our new website, I think. Am I correct, Josh? On our new website that is going to be live sometime today that you are going to tweet to someone or Facebook to someone. You can go out there and you can see all the questions that were asked and you can see all the answers that were given. Here's the summary of this whole series that we've been doing. If Christ is the center of a marriage, there is nothing that he can't overcome. Nothing. If Christ isn't the center of a marriage, all bets are off. But if he's the center of your marriage, there is nothing that he can't overcome. Because the cross changes everything, even marriages. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for your word that speaks to us with such power, with such practicalness, with such relevance. We thank you that you understand the issues of humanity better than we do. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have made provision for our sin through your body that was broken on the cross, through your blood that was shed on the cross for our sin. Lord, I ask for the marriages that are here today that maybe they're, growing, they're going strong and everything is, charts are all headed up. I ask, Lord, that you would bless those marriages. And even through the valleys that they will inevitably experience, I pray that you would bless them. Lord, for those that maybe they're, they're at a place that it just feels like the bottom and that there's no hope and that there's no way that we could come out of this, Lord, I pray that you would give them, just breathe into them, maybe even through what has been said today, breathe into them a sense of hope that there is hope. And that there is nothing, there's no place that the cross can't go. Not even in the depths of a human heart, the cross can go there. Lord, would you take them there? Lord, we worship you, we exalt you here. Pray that your name would be exalted here at City Church, in every church, in the community, and all over the city of Evansville. Bring a revival to this place.